I'd like to join with the other brethren in welcoming you to our service tonight. We appreciate you being here, each and every one of you. If you're visiting with this congregation, either from the community or from other congregations, we welcome you and encourage you back at any opportunity that you have. We're excited to continue the gospel meeting this week, and tonight we're going to look specifically at a story that happens in the New Testament, the conversion of Paul, or the Apostle Paul. He's also referred to in the scripture before he's, his name was changed as Saul, and so I always debate when I'm given this on whether I want to title it the conversion of Saul or the conversion of Paul and which one would make more sense because when he was converted his name was Saul but we know him as the Apostle Paul and we're going to look at his story and there's three chapters in the book of Acts where it talks about this conversion process that occurs with this uh, Apostle Paul and it's Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26 and so we'll look at some of those chapters and look at this story but I actually want to back up to Acts the sixth chapter and pick up a story that happens right before we are introduced to our character, the, the Apostle Paul or Saul at this time, for the first time in Scripture. And this story is about a man named Stephen. At the beginning of Acts chapter 6, you may remember that the church encountered an issue. The Grecians were murmuring against the Hebrews, saying that their widows were neglected in the daily ministration, that is, the daily service of providing food and the things that were needed for the widows. And so the apostle said, it's not reason that we should leave our ministry to go and to serve tables. So they told the people to pick out seven men of honest report that were full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom that they could appoint over that business to take care of the widows that were being neglected. And so the people looked out among themselves and they picked seven men. One of those men was named Stephen and he was a man, the scripture says, was full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And Stephen was out and he was doing the work of the church. He was doing the work of Christ, teaching Christ, visiting with people, and he got into a dispute with some different groups here in Acts chapter 6 and starting in verse 9. It says, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. Now I want us to notice a couple of things here. Stephen, this man full of faith of the Holy Ghost, this man who had been appointed as one of the seven to serve the church and to make sure that the widows were receiving the food and the things that they needed to live. He's out doing the work. He's out preaching Jesus. He gets into these disputes and it says they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. This was a man who not only had the ability to teach truth and use wisdom that could convince people, but also he did it in a way, he spoke in a way that was very convincing. And they couldn't resist that spirit of love and compassion that he had either. And so they were very angry by the things that Stephen was teaching about Jesus Christ. And so they take him and they bring him before the Sanhedrin council and they set up false witnesses that say Stephen was speaking blasphemous words against God, against the temple, against the old law. And so the high priest is going to look down at Stephen and he's going to ask him, are these things so? And then in Acts the seventh chapter, Stephen is going to give his defense Although it's not really much of a defense. When you read through that chapter, what he does is essentially give them a history lesson from their own Jewish history. And he talks about all of the different times that the children of Israel have continued to turn away from God. And God sent prophet after prophet to try to help and to try to turn them back towards him. And time and time again, Israel turned against him. And then he concludes this, uh, this speech with these words in Acts 7 and verse 51. Stephen, this man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, who's out doing the work of the church, who's been arrested and brought 
brought before the Sanhedrin council, which is that Jewish council of leaders and the high priest that literally held his life within their hands. And he looks up at these men and he says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. And so Stephen is going to speak with a lot of boldness and a lot of courage here before this council that literally holds his life in their hands. And he preaches to them the truth. And you have to know and believe that in this instance, Stephen knew what was at stake. And Stephen knew what could possibly happen here as a result of his very truthful and honest words. That they had been ones that were a party to betraying and murdering the Son of God. And he tells that to them to their face. And what did they do? He said, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now notice in verse 54 there it says that when they heard the things that Stephen had said, that they were cut to the heart. You know, when a person is convicted by something that they recognize as truth, there's generally one of two reactions that takes place. Either that conviction will provoke an idea and an attitude of humility and repentance to want to change and want to be better, or that conviction will provoke anger and rebellion and a disbelief of wanting to believe that that's true about themselves. And that's what happened in this case. And so they ran upon Stephen and they took him out and they began to stone him one at a time, throwing these stones toward him. I want to notice too something that Stephen said, just because I, I think that this is very, very interesting and intriguing, but Stephen looks up into heaven and he sees this image of God there and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And it's just interesting to note here that this is the one place in Scripture that I could find where Jesus is standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Several Scriptures that talk about Jesus sitting or being at the right hand of the throne of God, but in this one particular instance, it says Jesus is standing. And I don't know why. I don't know if there's a particular significance to that. But I imagine as God was providing this image of comfort to Stephen as he was about to endure these stones that were being hurled at him and he was facing his death, being a martyr for Christ. I think that God and Jesus allowed him to see that image as a way to comfort him for what was about to come. And Jesus may very well have been standing in that instance as if to welcome him home for the sacrifice that he was about to make. But nevertheless, they begin hurling those stones and notice who we have standing on the sideline watching all of this happen and being okay with it. And that's our character of the evening, Saul. It says when they laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, typically they would do this with someone that they trusted and that they respected. And though Saul was young at this point, he was evidently already very respected and well thought of in the Jewish circles. And so they trusted him. He looked upon this stoning of Stephen and Saul was in agreement with it. And then notice Stephen's last words there where he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And then he passed away. 
And those words remind me of the final words of somebody else that was dying on a cross where he looked down at those who had hung him on that cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the story of Stephen is a powerful story, but that's not the story we want to focus on tonight. We want to focus on the man who watched all of this happen and accepted it and thought it was good and thought it was right. In fact, Paul would go on, or Saul at this point would go on, not just in agreement and acceptance of the stoning of Stephen, but he would go on to be a persecutor of the church. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now we think about the Christian persecution in the first century, a lot of times we think about Nero, we think about uh, the Caesars, we think about Rome and the persecution that took place against the church, and certainly that took place, and it was terrible, but before really Rome persecuted the church, it was the Jews themselves that were persecuting Christianity and Christians, and they were the ones that stoned Stephen. And Saul was one of the ones leading this charge of persecuting Christians and Christianity. Verses 3 and 4 says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Saul did his job so well in persecuting the church and taking Christians and throwing them in prison and perhaps more instances like Stephen of stoning and putting Christians to death that Christian, the Christians at that point just scattered. But everywhere they scattered to, they were preaching Jesus. And they were an evangelistic church like we talked about last night. But this is what Saul made his mission, to persecute Christians and the church. But Saul's going to have a pretty spectacular experience on the road to Damascus at one point when he is going to do more persecution towards the church. And in Acts 22, he's going to tell this story. He says, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. I want you to notice a couple of things here. One, Paul is speaking to a group of Jews at this point and defending himself. And he says, I'm a Jew just like you. He says, I was raised according to the old law. He said, I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a, a very renowned Jewish teacher and, and a member of the Sanhedrin council in his day. And Paul studied under him. He learned under him, tutored under him. And he said, I was zealous toward God as you all are this day. And I just want us to recognize that while Saul, at this point, was going around and wreaking havoc on the church and persecuting Christians and putting them in prison and killing people, he was doing it because he was zealous toward God. He was doing it not because he had evil intent in his heart, not because he wanted to do evil, but because he thought he was doing good. He thought that was God's will for him. He was zealous to do good things for God according to the old law. And he saw Christ and Christianity as a false religion that was blaspheming against the old law and Moses and the prophets. And so he was zealous toward God. He persecuted this way, that's the Christian way, unto the death. And so he both threw people in prison and put them to death for being Christians. Verse 5, it says, As also the high priest doth bear be witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom I also received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. So Saul, as he's going around and he's wreaking this havoc and he's persecuting Christians, there are some Christians that have been captured in Damascus and he's going to go get them from Damascus. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they can be properly punished for the crime of believing in Jesus Christ. And he's on his way to pick up these Christian traitors when something happens. 
It says, It came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell into the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now get this picture in your mind just for a moment as Saul is traveling and he's doing his work. He's zealous towards God. He believes what he's doing is right. He's persecuting Christianity because it's going against the old law and he's on his way to do it some more and all of a sudden there's a great light that surrounds him so that he can't see and he hears this voice and it speaks to him by name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he answers this voice that's speaking to him and he says, who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Whom thou persecutest. Now I just want you to imagine for a moment being in Saul's shoes here. I don't think we can imagine what that must have been like in that moment. To have this spectacular experience where this great light surrounds you and suddenly you're hearing this voice from heaven and you say, who are you? And he answers, I'm the guy that you've been persecuting. Whose followers you've been putting to death. And that had to terrify Saul, I'm sure. For the great many travesties that he had he had given to the church as a part of his zealousness toward God. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. This was a very personal, direct communication that Jesus was having to Saul. And here's what Saul said in response to this. He said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus and there it shall be told thee of all the things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. So Saul immediately recognizes that this Lord, this God that is speaking to him from heaven certainly is real and is true. And he believes immediately and he says, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, go wait in Damascus and I'll send somebody to tell you what to do. And so God's going to send a man named Ananias to reveal God's will to Paul or to Saul. It says, And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked upon him. So for three days, Saul has been blind from that light that he saw on the road to Damascus until Ananias comes to him and he uh, restores his sight to him. And then Ananias said, the God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will and see that just one and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth for thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. In Acts chapter nine and verse 15, God told Ananias this about Saul. He said, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. You see, God's will for Saul was very specific. God had a plan for Saul. He wanted Saul to be a guy to bring the message of Christ to the world, to bring it to the Gentiles, to stand before kings and preach the gospel, to stand before the Jews and continue to preach the gospel. This man that had been persecuting the church, that had been wreaking havoc upon Christians, that had been causing Christians to scatter, this was the man that God had chosen to do this great work. But in verse 16, Ananias tells Paul something very important. He says, and now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. God delivered his instruction to Saul for what Saul needed to do in order to be saved, in order to be right with him. And Ananias delivered the instruction of God and that instruction was to stop waiting, to get up right this moment and to be baptized, to have his sins washed away. 
And once he had accomplished that and his salvation had been secured, then and only then could Saul go on to be the person that God had called him to be. That apostle that was to take the message of Christ to the Gentiles and before kings and before the Jews. He could not please God. He could not worship God. He could not serve God correctly until that step of salvation was taken, was taken care of. And it was not until that point when he was to get up and be baptized and have his sins washed away that he was forgiven and able to live that life that God wanted him to live. And I think we can learn from this that in our life, the same principle is true. That God wants us first and foremost before anything else to be saved. To be secure in our salvation. To know without a shadow of a doubt that our sins have been washed away. And the same instruction that was given here to Saul has been given to you and I through the Holy Scriptures. That this is the culminating moment where our sins are washed away. And we're going to talk about some reasons why this story teaches us the importance of baptism. But I want to talk to you for a moment about the will that God has for you. You know, God had a very specific will for Saul. And he stopped him personally to tell him what that will was, what that mission that he had for him was. Now, this was a very special interaction. And this was still in that time of miraculous gifts and spiritual gifts and, and a direct communication took place here between Jesus and the Apostle Paul because there was a very specific purpose and will that he had for him. Now, that same interaction is not going to be true for you and I today. We recognize today that we have the revealed word of God. We have the things that Jesus taught and that the Apostle Paul taught. We have those things recorded for us in the New Testament scriptures. And so God no longer deals with us in the way that he dealt with the Apostle Paul on that day. We're not going to be traveling one day and all of a sudden receive special revelation from God. That's not how he's chosen to communicate with you and I. He did that for a very particular purpose here with the Apostle Paul. But here is the will of God for you. He does have a will for you and for I. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 3 and 4 it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, our, of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. You know, the most important thing to God in regards to his relationship with us is that we are spiritually secure, is that our salvation is secure, is that we have an eternal home in heaven waiting for us. We've talked a little bit this week about the difference between the physical and the spiritual, the difference between walking after the flesh and walking after the spirit. And we're going to talk a little bit more this week about those concepts, but I want us to recognize and understand that before God cares about any of your uh, physical difficulties or physical well-being, before any of that, what he really, really cares about is your spiritual well-being. He cares about your soul. He cares about that you come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants every single man and woman that is old enough to understand. He wants them to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and make the decision to be saved according to the truth. That is God's will for you. Saul believed that he had the truth. Remember that Saul was zealous toward God. Saul was doing those things that he was doing and persecuting and putting Christians to death because he believed it was right. But he was wrong. And I think we need to be humble enough like the Apostle Paul was on that road to Damascus to recognize that we might be wrong. We might have a misunderstanding of things. We might be zealous toward God today, but zealous in the wrong actions. We may not have a full understanding of truth as Saul didn't have a full understanding of truth. But he was humble enough to say, what do you want me to do, Lord? I'll submit to your will. 
And that's what I think you and I need to take from this first and foremost, is that we be willing to submit to the will of God. That we we be willing to search out that truth, to come to the true, full knowledge of Jesus Christ and what his will is for us, so that we can ensure that we have that salvation that has been offered through Jesus Christ. And recognize that we may think we have the truth, but if the scriptures reveal to us that we're misunderstanding something, we need to be able to say, hey, I've misunderstood it. And I'm going to submit to what the scripture says. Because I want to be saved just like Saul was. I want you to know that there is a lot of false teaching that can occur today. There's a lot of things that are taught in the religious world today that we need to be careful about. You know, you'll hear some people that say that Jesus isn't even necessary. And you'll have those people that believe in the relativistic idea of God. And they'll say, it doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what you believe. God's going to accept you. But the reality is the scripture teaches that Jesus is the way. Do you believe that or do you not? That's the truth, even though there are some that will teach that you don't have to know Jesus to be right with God. Others will say, all you have to do is believe. As long as you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that's all it takes. And you'll be saved. Others will say, just say this prayer with me and God will save you and forgive you of your sins. And these are common things that are taught in the religious circles today. But I'm going to look at what the scripture says about these things. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That idea that we don't have to even believe in Jesus or know Jesus to be saved is just on his face untrue according to the scripture. There is not salvation found in any other name. Muhammad won't save you. Buddha won't save you. No other religious ideology will save you. But only Jesus Christ can save you and can save me. And we have to be willing to confront that knowledge and accept it and submit to the fact that Jesus is God's plan of salvation to us. Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And we have to accept and believe that, that Jesus is the only way to come to God. There's no way around this fact. And so if you're a member of a religion or a belief system that does not recognize Jesus as the Son of God, we cannot hope to be saved in that situation. We cannot hope to be right with God if Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God the Father. Those that will say all you have to do is believe in Jesus. We'd look at James chapter 2 verse 20. It says, but what wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Verse 24 says, ye see then how that by, faith, or by works a man is justified and not by faith only. You know, there's a teaching and idea out there that all we've got to do is believe and all we've got to do is have faith. And if we have faith and we believe in Jesus Christ, then that's what God cares about. And it really doesn't matter how we live. It doesn't really matter the works that we do in this life. But that's simply not true and James says just the opposite. That we're justified by works and not by faith only. Now that's not to say that we can earn our way to heaven or be good enough that we don't need Jesus and we can get there on our own. That's not what James is saying. But he's saying God expects a standard from us. God expects works from us. God expects obedience from us. Just as he expected from the Apostle Paul or Saul on that day on that road to Damascus. Notice in Acts chapter 9 and verse 6 it says, And he trembling... And astonished, this is Saul, he's trembling and he's astonished by what he is seeing and what he is hearing. And he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. I just want to ask you the question tonight, based on this story that we're talking about here with the Apostle Paul, did he believe at this point? Did he believe in Jesus Christ? 
Well, he called him Lord, and he asked him what he wanted him to do, and then he immediately went and did exactly what he told him to do, and he went to Damascus, and he waited. And I think any reasonable person would look at this and say, yeah, he believed. He had an experience that was undeniable, and he believed that Jesus Christ was real, and he believed that all the, at that moment that all the things that he had been working on to persecute Christianity and wreak havoc upon the church was misplaced faith and misplaced zeal. And he recognized that it wasn't right. And he believed in this moment, but was he saved? In Acts chapter 9 and verse 9, it says, He was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Now for those three days, Saul was there in Damascus. He's waiting on Ananias. We think about this idea of all you have to do is believe, or those that would say, just say this prayer, and that's what will save you. And, and here's what I would ask you to pay special attention to in this story. Saul believes already. And for three days, he's there without sight, waiting for this appointed messenger that's God, that God is going to send to reveal his will to him. What do you think Saul was doing for those three days? In Acts chapter 9 and verse 11, it says, The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. This is God speaking to Ananias. God tells him to go search for Saul and he reveals to Ananias what Saul has been doing for the last three days in Damascus while blinded by the light of Jesus Christ. He has been there in Damascus for three days praying. What do you think Saul was praying about? Well, it doesn't tell us, but I think we can surmise a few things. I think we can do that fairly. This is a man who has persecuted the church. This is a man who has put Christians to death and has just realized that his life's work was the opposite of right was the opposite of okay. That he's been living a life opposite of what God's true will for him was. This is a man that has just realized that he has murdered and thrown people in prison without just cause. And for three days he's praying to God. Don't you think he's probably praying for some forgiveness? Don't you think he's probably asking God to forgive him for those things that he has done as he has realized his immense wrongdoing? I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that that's probably was included in some of the prayers that Saul lifted up to God. And yet in that moment, after those three days, as Ananias arrived to teach Paul and to speak to Paul, what did he tell him? He said, and now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And this is what I would encourage you to think about as you listen and you hear those words in certain religious circles that all you have to do is believe or you say a prayer and it will save you. Remember that the Apostle Paul here, Saul, in his conversion story, he believed on that road to Damascus and yet he still had his sins. For three days he was praying to God. I'm going to take a pretty good guess and say he probably prayed for forgiveness. And yet he still had his sins. And it was not until that moment that he submitted to the will of God and obeyed the Lord in baptism that the scripture says that his sins were washed away. And at that moment, he had new life. He had a new start. He had a clean slate that had been given to him and an opportunity to then go and to recreate his life's work according to the truth of what God wanted for him. Paul, or God used Paul for great things. I want to notice a couple of things about the Apostle Paul, or about Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. He became an apostle and an evangelist, and he did a lot of good work. He went on several missionary journeys. He established congregations. He trained other people in evangelism. He wrote about half the New Testament scriptures that you're holding today. He went to prison for his faith, and he stayed faithful to God until death. And this is the same man 
that was persecuting Christians and murdering people because they believed in Christ. And he did all of those things because God revealed his truth to him. And when he learned that truth, he was humble enough to submit to it. To say, I recognize that I've been wrong and I'm willing to do what's right. And I'm willing to submit to the will of God. And he got up that day and he was baptized for the remission of his sins. And after his sins were gone and he had that fresh clean slate, he went on to do the work that he was called to do. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 19, he's standing before King Agrippa and he tells the king, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. The apostle Paul is standing there before the king and he says, I obeyed what God told me to do, what my Lord asked of me. I obeyed it and I went and I did it. And because of his submission on that day on the road to Damascus and because of his submission there that day when Ananias spoke to him and revealed God's truth to him because of his humility and willingness to accept that he had been wrong and willingness to move forward submitting to the will of God he was able to accomplish those great many wonderful things for the cause of Christ in the church. And he lived a faithful life until the time in which he saw his death approaching. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 8, he writes to the young evangelist Timothy, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Those are beautiful words. And it's a beautiful sentiment of faith from this man who had started out on such the wrong path, walking such an incorrect way of life, with a misunderstanding of truth, with a zeal that was misplaced, with an understanding of God that was only halfway there. But he had the attitude of humility and willingness to submit that allowed him to stay this faithful so that when he saw his death approaching, he was able to say that he had fought the fight, that he had finished the race, and that he had kept the faith. And I want to encourage you this evening, as you think about your life, and you think about your salvation, you think about your relationship with God, I want to encourage you to think about the steps that the Apostle Paul took to make his life right with God, and ask if you have taken those same steps tonight. You may find yourself in a situation where you were raised or taught that Jesus wasn't the only way, that there's multiple ways to get to God, and I'd encourage you to recognize that the scripture just simply teaches that that's not true. And have a willingness to submit and obey the fact that Jesus is the only way to God. You may find yourself tonight in a situation or having been raised in a situation where you believe that all you have to do is believe. That faith is all that's required. And that it doesn't really matter how we live. It doesn't really matter what we do. And that as long as we believe in our heart that that's all that God has asked. But remember that there were specific things that God wanted from the Apostle Paul. There were specific steps that Saul had to take in order to receive his salvation and then fulfill the will of God. And the same is true for you and I. Belief is the first step. And it's an important step. And you must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but that is not where it stops. Saul believed that and he still had a sin. Saul had to take those steps of salvation leading to his baptism and the washing away of his sins in order to be able to get here. And this is, I think, where all of us as Christians ought to want to get to. 
all of us as human beings, as people, we ought to want to get to a point in our life where when we see our death approaching, that we can say with courage and with boldness, I've done everything that I could do for the Lord. That in every way I have tried to be the servant of Christ that he has called me to be. I have fought the good fight. I've run my race. I've kept the faith. And that ought to be the prayer that all of us have that we'll be able to say as we face death's door as Saul did that day. I want you to know that God can use you too for a great and wonderful many things. But you have to be willing to submit to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 14, the scripture says, The body is not one member but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now has God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. You know, the reality is that you and I are probably not going to do the same things as the Apostle Paul did. But we all have a part to play in the work of the church. We all have a part to play in God's plan of salvation to mankind. But before we can worry about being a part of that mission, before we can worry about being a part of something that's greater than ourselves, we have to look at ourselves and ensure that we have taken those steps according to the truth of God's word and that our salvation is intact and is sure, just as the apostle Paul did. We read this last night, Luke chapter 10 and verse 2. Jesus said, Therefore he said unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. I believe at the core of most people there is good and a desire to do good. But good in and of itself is not enough. Choosing to be a part of the great work of Christ and the great work of the church is a noble decision to make. But Paul was zealous toward God. And you might be in a situation today where you believe that you are serving God, where you are zealous toward him, and you are trying to do the work that he has for all of us to do. But before you get so focused on that work and be a, being a part of that work, take a step back. And I ask you, and I implore you tonight, to look into the mirror, to think back at your salvation, at your experience with salvation, and ask yourself, does it match up with what I've seen in the scripture tonight? Does it match up with what Saul went through to become a Christian and start that great work of God? We all want to be pleasing to God. I hope we do. I hope that's our attitude tonight, that all of us want to be pleasing to God and that we want to be a benefit to the community and the people around us. And we want to be a part of the great work of Jesus Christ. If you want that tonight, you can be a part of that and God desires that for you. But before you start with your zeal and you go out and you begin to do the things that you believe are right, make sure that it's right. Make sure that you have the truth. Make sure that you've been saved as the Apostle Paul was that day. Because the reward of that submission and that humility and that willingness to say, I'm going to submit to the will of God in salvation, the reward for that is great. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus has promised to come back for those that are his. For those that have obeyed him, those that have submitted to his gospel, those that have been baptized for the remission of their sins. And as we conclude our message tonight, I would ask that you look at this verse one more time. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, this was the instruction that God gave to Paul. This was the truth from God. 
for how Saul could have his sins washed away and to start his new life with a clean slate. He already believed. He had already been praying. And none of that had washed his sins away. But this is what God told him to do. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You may be here tonight. And as you make that inward reflection and you look at yourself in the mirror of your mind and you think about your salvation tonight, you may have a realization this evening that you've not submitted to the will of God in this. You may have a realization this evening that maybe you thought that your belief was all that was necessary. You may look back at your salvation experience and remember a prayer that you said that you've believed to this point is what saved you. I would ask you to humbly and seriously consider the instruction of God to Saul because it is the same instruction that he gives to you and I today. It is the same method of salvation. It has not changed. And it is the same thing that Peter taught in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. To repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And it's the same message that we see repeated over and over throughout the book of Acts. And I ask you tonight, humbly and sincerely, to consider your salvation. To consider your life. And consider if this is a step that you need to take. As we stand and sing our invitation song.